Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today, December 6th, today with Amy Hickman, using the first chapters, first six chapters of Moroni as text. I'm Chris Kimball, conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. I'm joined by uh, board members, Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz, who are on the screen or not as they click their buttons. We are using our webinar format today as usual and running a live stream on Facebook. And we are live on Facebook already. We're recording this program and we'll post the recording as soon as it's available. Um, as always, we have a chat session running and we'll try to follow comments on Facebook as well and introduce those when appropriate. There will be time and opportunity for discussion and for um, uh, experiences and questions. Uh, before we begin, let me just look forward a bit. Next week, uh, December 13th, um, Professor Joseph Spencer of the BYU, uh, Professor of Ancient Scripture at BYU, will teach our final study session of the year. Kind of sad thing to say. Um, and in two weeks, on December 20th, in the evening, Brian Kershiznik will continue our Fireside series speaking about waiting for Jesus. Um, it's giving season, and I can't fail to mention Dialogue's annual request. I have the letter from Taylor Petrie, our editor, uh, requesting um, donations. If you didn't get a letter, um, get on the mailing list. If you did get a letter, respond. Uh, you can always click a donate button as well. Now, for today's session, let's begin. Uh, I'd like to introduce, first of all, Amy Hickman, a Amy Evans Hickman, who will be our teacher today. Amy has been collecting stories in various forms for as long as she can remember, from the tales of her early Latter-day Saint ancestors following Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, from one promised land to another, to her nearly two decades working with Exponent 2, including a stint as editor-in-chief of the Exponent 2 magazine from 2009 to 2015. In addition to her BA in English from the University of Utah, Amy's background in American primitive antique furniture, textiles, and jewelry helps her pay attention to the many marks we leave with our hands and hearts. She lives in Baltimore, Maryland with her husband, Jared, and her three children. We're really excited to have Amy with us today. Um, I repeat our typical, our, our, our regular um, positioning. We invited Amy for her voice, for her experience, for her uh, teaching. She does not speak for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And even though we invited her and asked her to be here, not officially for the Dialogue Foundation. Uh, our, now our program will open uh, with uh, an opening song, Earth Song, presented by Vaches 8. And our opening prayer will be offered by Sylvia Cabas, who is with us for the lesson and will participate as well. Sylvia is from the Philippines and grew up in California. She joined the church at the age of 27 after volunteering in the Peace Corps and before starting a graduate degree in international relations. Sylvia works as a senior advisor on global women's issues for the US government. She lives in Washington DC with her husband and son and currently serves as the ward public affairs specialist. She is a faithful member of the Exponent 2 community where she met Amy and other kids. Our heavenly parents, we are grateful for this time to gather and ponder the words of Moroni and to listen to Sister Hickman teach. 
We are grateful for the season of Advent, for the opportunity to remember Christ's birth, to serve and love one another as he did. We ask you to comfort those who are ill, especially those who are sick and recovering from COVID, for those who are suffering from the effects of the pandemic, and for the safety and health of all. We ask you to guide our leaders and to strengthen our own gifted discernment during this tumultuous time. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, I have been anxious about this for weeks and it wasn't until Sylvia agreed to be in the frame with me and know that I could draw on her wonderful spirit and uh, always wise and insightful and very funny um, friendship that I felt a lot better about this. So thank you, Sylvia. And thank you to Christine Haglund who chose our opening hymn. That was just beautiful for the season that we're in and for the feelings that are in my heart today. Um, I apologize in advance that I am a little bit extra festive with this um, antler reindeer thing going on. I keep trying to block it, but I'm just going to be upfront that that's going to keep happening. So I apologize. Um, my posture is just not good enough for that. Um, so I'm really excited about the passages that we are going to read together today. Um, it is actually um, for a person like me who has an English degree, being able to work on one and a half pages of text is kind of a dream um, to just really deep dive into um, the, the intricacies of what's going on. And even though when you first look at the book of Moroni and you look at these first six chapters, um, it can be a little intimidating because two of these chapters are the most familiar scriptures in our book. Um, and so I hope that today you are uh, willing to go on a little uh, adventure with me as we think about the character of Moroni and what motivated him to um, include what he chose to include in these, in these books. Um, and I'm gonna begin by using technology. Okay, um, sharing a little bit of my personal connection to Moroni. Um, when I was about 12, my parents bought a, a historic pioneer homestead in San Pete County, which is, um, and specifically just outside of Fountain Green, about two, two miles south of Fountain Green along the Sand Pitch Mountains. Um, and as we started uh, the restoration work on those old cabins, it was a polygamous homestead. So there were all these little cabins for all the different wives. Um, we would occasionally attend the Fountain Green First Ward. And it was there that I first heard um, the story that is actually on the church's website uh, about the, the Manti Temple, that on the morning that the ground was dedicated for the Manti Temple, Brigham Young told a local bishop that Moroni had dedicated that land for a temple centuries before. And that temple has its own spot in my cosmic geography as it's the place that Jared and I chose to seal up our 21-year-old hearts 22 years ago. Um, for me, that little bit of uh, Mormon folklore has heavily influenced my reading of Moroni as it's the one book that I actually have really vivid scenic backdrops for. Uh, when I think of Moroni hiding out in fear of his life, I imagine the high desert canyons, 
the smell of juniper and sage, the threat of rattlesnakes and fire ants, the sounds of herds of elk bugling in the frosty night sky during the rut, and of course, the spotted owl watching over all of it for millennia. I begin here because for me, the scene of Moroni's desolation is as inextricable from the high desert of Utah in my imagination as Frederick Douglass's from where he called ships in Baltimore's inner harbor or where Anne of Green Gables wandered the countryside of Avonlea. And so um, in locating Moroni in this place, the place I most call home, has reinforced for me the central teaching of the Book of Mormon, that the Americas have a rich and sacred history that predates European colonization. The tragic irony, of course, is how the very people that have learned and taught from this book to build Zion have often been responsible for the erasure of that history in places like Sanpete County and other parts of the American West. So I would just like to begin today by pausing to pay respect to those ancient and living inhabitants whose land I currently occupy from a place called Baltimore, but I acknowledge belonging to the history of the Piscataway and Manitok and to the high desert land on which I have envisioned Moroni hiding out on the ancestral homelands of the Utes, Paiutes, Goshute, and Pavant. No matter our approach to the Book of Mormon, to take its message seriously, to revere its text as scripture, means acknowledging that the first peoples of the Americas had a rich and sacred history long before Europeans arrived on their lands. The chapters that we're investigating today remind us that the landscape and its indigenous inhabitants demand our continued attention and earnest investigation into their lives, or as Shoshone historian and tribal member and Latter-day Saint Darren Perry reminded his readers on Facebook yesterday, winter was the time the elders tell stories. Who will come and sit and hear our story? People will always forget facts and figures. They will never forget how they felt when they heard our story. And I'm especially grateful to Sylvia for mentioning um, our prayerfulness over those suffering from COVID right now. I'm thinking specifically of the native communities across our continent that are being especially hit hard. Um, and so this is a little indulgence of mine. I hope that you won't mind um, to keep America's indigenous inhabitants at the forefront of our minds during this lesson. Um, I'm accompanying all of my slides with images I've taken over the years of this landscape, uh, what I imagine being the, back, the background of Moroni's uh, desolation. So if nothing else, you'll at least have pretty pictures to look at. Um, Sylvia, would you mind reading these four verses that are all of chapter one of Moroni, please? I am honored to Amy, since I would not have a possibility to do this in church. <laughs> 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 uh, and they did kneel down with the church and pray to the Father in the name of Christ, saying, Oh God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name oh, of no. Oh, wait, sorry. That's for later. We're doing just oh. Moroni chapter one right now. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. I've given you a lot to do. <laughs> I also have momnesia. Um, Moroni chapter one. Now I, Moroni, after having made an end of abridging the account of the people of Jared, I had supposed not to have written more, but I have not as yet perished, and I make not myself known to the Lamanites, lest they should destroy me. For behold, their wars are exceedingly fierce among themselves, and because of their hatred, they put to death every Nephite that will not deny the Christ. And I, Moroni, will not deny the Christ, wherefore I wander, whithsoever I can, 
for the safety of my own life. Wherefore, I write a few more things contrary to that which I had supposed, for I had supposed not to have written any more, but I write a few more things that perhaps they may be a worth unto my brethren, the Lamanites, in some future day, according to the will of the Lord. Thank you so much. So this opening to the book of Moroni sets us up for uh, what I'm calling the Book of Mormon's bonus tracks. Um, when we hear Moroni tell us, I had supposed not to have written more, but I have not as yet perished. I write a few more things contrary to that which I had supposed, for I had supposed not to have written any more, but I write a few more things. In essence, he's telling us over and over, I think I should be dead, but since I'm still alive, I know I have to fill up the rest of these plates. Moroni's anxiety about the empty space on the plates that he has been called to write upon feels really relatable to me. And maybe I'm just projecting my own neuroses onto him and I confess that maybe this is the first time this week that I thought if I got COVID that would be fine because maybe I wouldn't have to teach Sunday school. But I detect that part of him thought and maybe even hoped that he would die before he had to fill these blank pages and perform this kind of prophecy. Um, I'm struck by a comparison that comes to mind of um, when the Lord commands Enoch to prophesy in Moses 7. And I've always marveled at and been sort of terrified at how quickly and eagerly Enoch was to do that. So I have a real affection for, and maybe a real sympathy for, what I detect is Moroni's anxiety. Um, to this point, he's mostly only um, been, he's mostly only recorded what he's been explicitly commanded to write with a few editorial additions. So Mormon 8.1, he tells us, I have but a few things to write, which things I have been commanded by my father. And he's preoccupied with reminding his readers of all the limitations he's facing, ironically eating up several verses in Mormon and Moroni, sharing how he's running out of time and materials. Mormon 8, for example, and behold, I would write also if I had room upon the plates, but I have not, and or have I none. And then, of course, there are the passages filled with preemptive apologies for any errors contained in the record due to his errors or others' errors um, that we find like back in Mormon 9.31 and here in Ether 12.23-24, where he writes, And I said unto him, Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing, for thou hast not made us mighty in writing, and thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. Behold, Thou hast not made us mighty in writing like unto the brother of Jared. So Moroni is reminding us again and again that he is a human, a human in deep mourning, no less. And the fact that we have this book at all is kind of a fluke and also a gift. How much of scripture comes down to chance, to being in the right place at the right time and living long enough to step into what we feel called to do? So before I move on to Moroni's work in chapters two through six, I wanna honor the way that his abridgment is punctuated by his own anxiety about his calling. And in doing so, Moroni models a need for God's grace to fulfill his prophetic calling that I think we can all learn from. I love this moment back in Ether as Moroni tortures over whether his own awkwardness will compromise the sacred text that he's been entrusted with. And God replies, my grace is sufficient for all that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, 
Then I will make weak things become strong unto them. And I, Moroni, having heard these words, was comforted and said, O Lord, thy righteous, oh, I think I messed that up. Thy righteousness will be done, for I know that thou workest unto the children of men according to their faith. That Moroni's God assures him that self-awareness of his weakness will give him the humility to fulfill this work is a comfort not just to Moroni, but to each of us who have been paralyzed by our own deep fear of failure. We know that by the end of Moroni's book, he is going to fulfill his prophetic calling. But I personally find it comforting and invigorating to see the way that Moroni really has to work for it. And I think that sometimes we forget or are entirely unaware of all the self-effacing anxiety that precedes what are arguably the only chapters of scripture that most members have memorized. So let's return to Moroni 1 and consider uh, Moroni's circumstances. Let's think about what he chose to write about. How did his circumstances influence what he records in the limited amount of space he has left to write on? How does his loneliness in particular affect what he includes? Um, so thinking about who he's writing for in this book, he's not writing for his descendants. He's not writing for his Nephite people. He's longing for a reconciliation that he knows is many, many generations away. It's not like the people who built Notre Dame or are continuing to build Sagrada Familia where you expect and hope that future generations of your people will worship. No, this church is never going to belong to the Nephites again. And Moroni sees past this communal and personal apocalypse. He understands that what he is passing on is portable and resilient and adaptable. And he doesn't spend a lot of time writing about his travails in the wilderness, but instead continually expresses a deep longing for a community that he's lost. It's always making us ask the question, what would it feel like to be the last man on earth, the last of your people? It's really, as my husband said, an inherently dramatic first person narrative situation. <laughs> so um, Moroni is at the end of sacred history. His Nephite people are destroyed. The church that will be restored will not be for them. The ordinances, rituals, and text originally embedded in a concrete historical moment are now decontextualized. It's really moving uh, when you think about how he's holding on to all the sacred history for an entire people in his hands and in his own memory, how he's longing for it. On its surface, Moroni chapters two to five might seem a redundant summary of Christ's appearance in third Nephi, but what Moroni is creating is not a historical document, but a guide for a living church. This is when I meant to read that. The ordinances, rituals, and text originally embedded in a concrete historical moment are now decontextualized from that moment in order to transcend time and space. In Moroni 2.3, now Christ spake these words unto them at the time of his first appearing, and the multitude heard it not, but the disciples heard it. And on as many as they laid their hands fell the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> this is the moment I think Moroni steps into his prophetic role, taking the dispensing of Christ's power out of third Nephi's historical moment in time and through Nephite history 
into a post-Nephite future. There's an effortlessness in how easily power is dispersed beyond apostles and witnesses through hands recklessly laid on multitudes. Moroni offering the implements of church making proves that their durability precisely because they are not going to be used by the people that forged them. So what do you need to bring a faith community together? In Moroni 6.5, and the church did meet together off to fast and to pray and to speak one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. It's this flowing spirit, communal ritual, a sort of utopian ideal of a community organized around the welfare of souls, which we always need to remember that DNC teaches us is the spirit and the body combined. It's that worry, that concern, that love over the welfare of, a soul, of each other's souls that makes a church. So maybe this is the part of these scriptures that we can most easily liken to ourselves in this moment, when we too feel the ache of missing hands, of communal worship, that we ourselves are hiding out for the safety of our own lives from a virus ravaging our communities, and also from a society that is abandoned, it's most vulnerable to it. So here I'm going to ask my dear Sylvia to read the sacrament prayers for us. And she's gonna share um, what her experience with church has been like uh, during these many months that we've had to make ourselves not known to COVID. Um, and as she does so, if, if there are people who feel inclined to share their experience, um, our moderators are going to um, add those to the conversation after Sylvia is done. Thank you, Amy, for your always insightful and inspiring words. Um, and thank you again for inviting me um, to participate and to support you on this um, wonderful session that we have today. Thank you. Um, I just want to double check Book of Mormon, Moroni, <laughs> Sucker of Prayers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, alrighty. Um, and they did kneel down with the church and pray to the Father in the name of Christ, saying, Oh God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy son and witness unto thee, O God, the eternal father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy son and always remember him and keep his commandments, which he hath given them, that they may always have his spirit to be with them. Amen. The manner of administering the wine, behold, they took the cup and said, O God, the eternal Father, we ask thee, in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sacrifice this wine to the souls of all those who drink of it, that they may do so in the remembrance of the blood of thy Son, which was shed for them, that they may witness unto thee, O God, the eternal Father, that they do always remember him, and that they may have his spirit to be with him. Amen. In all honesty, I have to say it is very strange to read aloud the words, that I have now heard hundreds and hundreds of times, but never very rarely say on my own and knowing that my son will be on his own reading and saying these prayers with myself once again, witnessing him doing that. So it really is um, very profound for me uh, to read the sacrament prayers. Um, and when Amy asked me to share my thoughts about how church is now. Um, I started to think about my own experience living overseas. 
uh, I lived in West Africa um, in countries where there was no church presence whatsoever. Um, after I finished graduate school as an almost 30 year old single woman, I made the difficult decision to move overseas. And I lived in uh, Morocco, Mali and Burkina Faso where I was under the jurisdiction of the West Africa present area presidency in Accra, Ghana. Um, and clearly I have no priesthood authority. And so um, when I was able to participate in sacrament, it was either uh, visiting other congregations in Europe or uh, other parts of Africa, or when someone would come and let me know that uh, they were available to um, administer the sacrament. And in fact, one of the first essays that I wrote for uh, Exponent, the magazine, was called um, Away from the Tribe, Reflections on Being Apart and Not Being Apart from the Community of Saints. So I've had the experience of reading the sacrament prayer as it is, as a prayer, since I could not administer the sacrament myself. And that's when I started to wonder, what does it mean to be a faithful member when you're away from the institutional church? or in pandemic times with virtual church instead of physical church. On one hand, I could sit in on a meeting of any congregation in the world or indeed of any other denomination in the world. On the other hand, why would I do that? Given that we are assigned wards based on our geographic locations and I made a commitment with my baptism that I would be a member of this church. So with COVID restrictions and a non-member husband, home church for us has been a difficult premise. How can we distinguish home church, for example, from family home evening? It's still my son and myself pouring over this month's issue of The Friend and laboriously cutting out Book of Mormon paper dolls. COVID also comes at a crucial point for my son's spiritual development. He turns eight next spring uh, but he is, and he is learning how to be a member without the secure embrace of the primary program. We miss the annual fall run up to the primary program in November when uh, I realize that my death glare is limited to two to three pews. Um, he is starting to forget his Sunday friends because he sees his school friends during the week a lot more often. Luckily, he is being tutored on Zoom by one of the primary teachers um, in which they go through every week um, a story from the Book of Mormon. But that's because we have an iPad, a reliable Wi-Fi, and board members who are so enthusiastically happy about helping us out. And all those things are luxuries for most of the world and indeed for a good member of ward members. So the underlying question is, what does it mean to be a member when you're away from the physical institution, when the in-person meetings are limited, when home church is not a possibility, when the whole point of being a ward family doesn't really apply anymore? When President Oaks said the words Black Lives Matter, there was only the virtual community to celebrate with. I didn't have the contact info of the sister in our ward who wore a BLM t-shirt to the ward Christmas party a couple of years ago. I hope that the church will use the pandemic and its aftermath to reflect on how to better support all members. Already under normal circumstances, members fall through the cracks. I hope that after the pandemic, we'll be able to find all the lost sheep. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
My goodness, Sylvia. I love that question that you asked. Um, what does it mean to be a member when we're away? This is, this is the question that Moroni is asking in these texts. That's exactly it. And um, I don't know, I personally, your reading the sacrament prayers for me felt as holy as any time I've ever heard them. So thank you for that. Um, do we have any comments coming in to share or should I move along? Oh no, we let's uh, let's pick up some comments here. Okay. Um, partly an answer uh, or response, I guess. I, Sylvia is talking and comments come, <laughs> but um, several people in a not dissimilar situation talk about being appreciating priesthood holders coming in pairs. Um, I appreciate priesthood holders coming in pairs, as I am a widow and have not had the sacraments and have had the sacraments sporadically due to electing not to go to church during this time. Um, another, our sweet home teacher comes a couple of times a month to do front porch sacrament with my two daughters and myself. I appreciate this simple service he is willing to share. Um, on the other hand, uh, comment, I miss the time it takes to pass the sacrament mm -hmm. where one can has time to ponder and think about Christ. With just my husband and myself, we're done in several minutes without that quiet time. I think others are I, also expressing um, the power that it had to, to hear Sylvia uh, speak the prayer and that some of us are also having those kind of experiences where we're able to say the prayer um, ourselves during the, the pandemic. Yeah, let me, let me add one of my experiences. Um, in the first line of each of the prayers is, uh, is the word we. And I have, that has always been, that we has always been the two priests up at the table. Until, tear me up in memory, I guess. Um, the first time Linda and I had, um, because of the pandemic, occasion to have a sacrament in our home with just the two of us. Um, I said the words and I choked up on the we because then the we was, it had a richer meaning. I don't want to make too much of that, but suddenly I had to think about what was we, what was the we here in, in, in this prayer? Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. Um, that's so beautiful because I've, I've really been thinking of this so much uh, as Moroni alone. <laughs> um, that is a beautiful way of thinking about how the we becomes whoever you're with. Um, that, we, that we might need to make more of an effort in the future to take it out of just the hands of the, of the young men sitting behind the sacrament table. But the we is... is could be I, but it could be we. <laughs> yeah, so some of that fits with um, part of my reflection and experience with the sacrament during COVID is that my little five-year-old um, 
takes on responsibility, both for making sure it happens and also <laughs> kind of um, passing around the, the bread plate and the water cup to members of the family. And that's been, um, I, I've, it's just been wonderful to kind of see her take this on and be excited about it. Um, and something, you know, something new. Uh, she'd always be excited about the sacrament time anyway during regular sacrament meeting, but um, but she definitely has this sense of, of responsibility. Oh, I love that. I, I mean, I hate the pandemic, but I love the way that it is making us maybe defamiliarize ourselves with some of these things that have become so habituated and from things like re hearing we in a new way, or I was really moved by um, the person who commented about missing that, that time that the sacrament is being passed, um, recognizing that like there is something profound in time <laughs> and in absence um, that we often don't, that we just take for granted. And that I do feel like the book of Moroni is always asking us to think about. Um, and so, Thank you, everybody, for uh, helping give us a, a bigger perspective on what this experience has been like for people um, in the, the Mormon feminist community, which I am actively engaged with all the time. Um, there has been a lot of discussion around um, specifically access to um, the sacrament and other ordinances during this time um, for women. And um, one of the things I really wanted to share. Um, well, actually, before I get to that, I'm going, I'm going to prove why what I'm about to read is good. <laughs> um, so Moroni 6-9, this is sort of uh, wrapping up these chapters that, like I was calling them, sort of the, the quick guide to making a church, um, where I feel like this, this single verse sort of sums up um, how flexible and durable and adaptable um, church can be for us. And, and I think that we're seeing that even in our own homes during this pandemic. Um, Moroni 6-9, and their meetings were conducted by the church after the manner of the workings of the spirit and by the power of the Holy Ghost. For as the power of the Holy Ghost led them whether to preach or to exhort or to pray or to supplicate or to sing, even so it was done. And I love this idea that worship is a moment of inspiration in which you're guided by the workings of the spirit and by the power of the Holy Ghost. And that we, in communion with the divine, decide what we write on this blank page of our worship um, on, a, on a weekly basis, but on a life basis. What are we going to preach, to pray, to sing? Um, and this last year has highlighted how for many, um, that experience uh, is very different, especially for those who don't live with a priesthood holder. Um, and it shows how much our spiritual lives are dependent on constant creativity and dialogue with the divine. And uh, something that really moved me um, early in the pandemic was this um, blog post that was submitted to the Exponent 2 blog. I wish so much I knew who the author was if she happens to be here and she wants to email me so that I can thank her, I would welcome it. Um, but
but you can look this up for yourselves uh, if you want to after this, but I'm going to read her blog post in whole um, because I think it sheds light on, on how we are able to continue to commune with God um, in the way that Moroni is teaching us. We are able to commune with God, whether we are alone or together. So this is the, uh, the title of her um, blog post, if you want to look it up, is Swallowed Up coping with COVID-19. It is only great upheaval that truly destabilizes the structures of power and allows that which was held by the few to be claimed instead by the many. The act of taking so unthinkable a week ago is now the only reasonable course of action. A week ago, I hurried through my morning routine to make it to my local chapel in time for the passing of the sacrament. If I was late, I knew I'd have no chance to receive it for another week at least. These are the rules of the world of the universe of God. The sacrament of our Lord's Supper is something that must be given to me by a priesthood leader and can be denied to me by that same leader. And it has been denied many times. When I became lost in the labyrinthine London transportation system and arrived at church too late to partake, I was denied. When I turned to the priesthood holders in my travel group and asked them to bless it for me, I was denied. I have been denied because of snowstorms, conferences, exigencies of travel or of employment or of health, Cannot take this sacrament, sister. I cannot or will not or may not bless it for you. Wait and try again. Have patience. All my patience has been swallowed in one gulp by the great upheaval that is an unthinkably small string of RNA code. Meetings are canceled around the world. The traditions of my entire life destabilized in a finger snap. I share lodgings with the woman who works in the pediatric ward of our local hospital. She and all the microorganisms on her hands and in her mouth travel each day between my home and rooms consecrated to four-year-old cancer patients. To allow a priesthood holder and all his defiled exhalations access to my home is a matter of life and death. I think of millstones in the depths of the sea and refuse my ministering brother's offer to bring the sacrament to me. What about Skype? I ask in a voice that suggests I'm joking when I'm not. Could you bless it for me over Skype? He laughs. I don't have permission. I don't have permission either. And for the first time in my life, I do not ask for it. I change into clean formal clothes, brush my quarantine neglected hair and perform that most precious and ubiquitous of ordinances, the washing of hands. I lay out upon my kitchen table, the ritual objects that have always been here in guise of common household goods, a scrap of bread in a sauce bowl, a mouthful of water in my smallest glass the leather-bound books that went with me across the ocean and came back again. I cover the emblems with my great-grandmother's white handkerchief. I sing the hymn that is stuck in my head, every verse straining through the melody line, though my voice wants the easy familiarity of the alto harmonies, the proper interval of grace against the voices above and below. Then I open my books, pull back my handkerchief, and bow my head. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. I speak blasphemies, I am committing heresy, I am defiled. I am blessing the sacrament with my woman's mouth, the eternal father. My own father is far away. Everyone I love is far away. All that presses in close around me is the virus, the dread that sticks to my skin like drying blood. Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabachthani. We ask thee, God, I ask but I ask no one else, and I swallow into myself the emblems I have blessed.
I cannot read that or not believe that there is a divine grace that transcends time and space and dispensations and institutions and genders and generations. <laughs> um, I believe in this kind of consecration that is trusting that your offering can be made holy. <clears throat> so I know I'm reading against the grain here a little bit. <laughs> I know that there are readings of these chapters that reinforce the idea the priesthood is dispensed in a straight line with mappable genealogies and clear-cut authority, and that the restoration of the church is simply cutting out two nearly millennia of apostasy and sewing Moroni and Joseph Smith seamlessly together. But it isn't. There are no Nephites in 1830 or 1930, nor will there be in 2030. No, the Book of Mormon reminds us that sacred history is filled with absence of lost peoples and stories, ruined temples and burned libraries on every continent. That emptiness is holy space, a church that is not Nephite, Lamanite, or even ours, but requires the reconciliation and sealing up of every human who has ever lived. And perhaps it's that absence that moves me so much in Moroni's narration as he hides out like the end of a dystopian apocalypse film, The Last Man on Earth. Even after all has passed away, everyone he loves has died. The gospel itself has failed or people have failed the gospel time and time again in the notorious Book of Mormon pride cycle. Moroni was still determined to preserve it anyway. And through his own sorrow and anxious narration, Moroni convinces us that if this text could survive his bad writing, mangled materials, centuries buried in the earth, and a treasure-seeking farm boy with dubious language skills translating it all, then I would argue this church, this gospel laid out on these pages is for anyone who wants it, who loves it, who makes it, who consecrates it again and again. And I need to believe this. Richard Bushman uh, coined a term that I love, radiant Mormonism. I think of it as sort of 13th article of faith Mormonism as I experience it a life invigorated by the eternal believing and hoping of all things among a multi-generational, multi-species communion of all our relations mingling in the soil and firmament of the universe in search of reconciliation, justice, and rest through divine soul redeeming love. And so I'm closing this part, maybe we'll have some discussion afterwards, but my lesson, um, with the hope of Advent, the season of perpetual anticipation, the return of the sun, the silent night filled with hope under a Christmas star, or perhaps the once in every 800 year conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that will be occurring this December 21st, so do look up. That Advent spirit in which Moroni spent his days looking forward is, I believe, for all of us, whenever and wherever we are, whatever hope we need to hold. And so we'll close our meeting today with the um, hymn, Abide With Me, and a prayer that divine light and love will abide with all of us in our own darkness during these difficult times, now and always. And I offer these things in the name of the author and finisher of Moroni's faith, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And as Amy said, we will 
close with Abide With Me um, using William Henry Monk's uh, melody, Eventide. And our benediction will be offered by Jared Tickman. And I think we have decided that Jared's introduction or bio is that he is Amy's husband. <laughs> All our relations through space and time, all who have the power and the desire to sustain us, we are grateful for our lives and we're mindful of the death and the desolation around us at this moment in time, the death and desolation that Moroni experienced in the ways so powerfully illuminated by this lesson, this conversation today. We're grateful for this chance, such as it is to commune together and, and to mourn together in the face of that desolation and death. And we look forward, as we have been urged to do, to the light that returns even at this season of darkness and to ask that we will be sustained as we need it, that we will be able to press on in the cosmic story that we're a part of, that we will be able to offer sustenance and blessing to all those connected to us, that we'll be able to redeem one another, to save one another. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I like him. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Thank you for all that you brought to us today. Um, Sylvia and Jared and the music. Um, there, are, there are many um, thanks in comment. Um, 